0: This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey, folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. Today, I speak with Sarah Vowell and Brad Tire. Sarah is a best-selling author, journalist, and doer of many awesome things. And Brad is an editor at Montana Free Press and the manager of The Newsroom. These two have teamed up to produce some amazing content to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Montana State Constitution and to explore some of the wonderful stories behind its creation.
1: And there's something about some of these delegates where, I mean, obviously, none of them had ever written a constitution before, but they just, you know, took the ball and ran with it.
0: On March 22nd, the day of the actual signing by the delegates, Sarah and Brad's Montana Free Press colleague, John Adams, will moderate a panel event at MSU commemorating the anniversary. Sarah, Brad, thanks for coming on the show today.
1: You bet. Thank you.
0: Yeah. So tell us where you grew up and what did your parents do? Sarah, we'll start with you.
1: I was born in Oklahoma, and when I was 11, my family moved to Bozeman, where I graduated from high school. My dad was a gunsmith in Oklahoma and a machinist at MSU here in Bozeman. My mom went to hairdressing school and was a hairdresser, and let's just say that's reflected in my appearance (laughs) since no one can see me.
0: Um, Brad, how about you? Yeah, I was. Uh, I was born in a little
2: college town called Bryan, Texas, uh, when my dad was a graduate student at Texas A and M. But don't have any memories from there. I was. I was raised pretty exclusively in Houston, Texas. My dad was a civil engineer, a wastewater engineer, and uh, my mother was, I guess they call a homemaker. Although she had a series of jobs and uh, and went to work in the insurance industry a little later on. So uh, I didn't get any of the homemaking or the. Uh, or the engineering genes.
0: <laughs> sure. Well, so we are here today to talk about this amazing document, the Montana State Constitution. We're celebrating the fiftieth anniversary. You two are engaged in an extensive project to document its history, which it sets the stage for us. How did you get interested in the Montana State Constitution? Sarah, kick it off.
1: Well, Any Montanan lives in the Montana of the 1972 Constitution every single day. 50 years ago, 100 Montanans, some of them attorneys and former mayors and city council members, others were homemakers and lawyers and car dealers and tractor dealers and there was a beekeeper. They were elected by their neighbors to write a new constitution to replace the old one from statehood that was the brainchild of William Clark and the Copper Kings. And um, they set out to um, write a new document that was more for the people and to create good government and to do so it was a pretty public-spirited, collaborative, nonpartisan process in a way that I find inspiring.
0: Sure, and we'll get into a lot of those aspects, but, but before we start, Brad, tell us how you got interested in the document.
1: You
2: know, I got interested in the document kind of sideways uh, long before uh, Sarah called and asked Montana Free Press to be involved in this project. One of the reasons I moved to Montana, there were a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons that I moved to Montana is I had gotten into canoeing. In mm-hmm. Texas, and I don't know if you uh, do any river running, but Texas is not the place to do it. No, Texas's property is like ninety-seven percent of the state is is private property, so it's about as different from Montana as, as you could imagine. And stream access laws were an issue where you can get in, where you can get out, what you can do in a river. And as I got into canoeing in Texas around Houston, <laughs> I got interested in stream access laws, and that bumped me into the Montana Constitution. So I heard about it even before I moved to Montana, you know, started hearing about this one of the most progressive constitutions in the country. Uh, you often hear people talk about Montana ads, and, and one of the keystones, at least on the environmental front and, and on the recreational front as well is uh, a very liberal stream access law. So that kind of sparked my interest. Got a little more interested in the early 2010s, researched and wrote a book called Opportunity Montana that is too complicated to summarize probably, but really brought up the issue in the Montana Constitution of the right to a clean and healthful environment, which is a a, a notable notable provision of that document. And then, of course, more recently, uh, Sarah brainstormed this project and asked Montana Free Press to be involved and was really excited for the opportunity to work with Sarah. So that drew me
1: I will add that um, more recently, um, and I think it was 2019, there was a court case uh, from Montana, Espinosa versus the state of Montana that went to the United States Supreme Court. And it was about the clause in the Montana Constitution education article barring public money going to private religious Mm -hmm. schools. And the surviving delegates all wrote an amicus brief, for that Supreme Court case and sort of like laid out the history of the convention and what they were trying to do and their democratic impulses and, you know, their resistance to any public money going to any religious purposes. And when they did that, and I read that it's a great amicus brief. If you're into amicus briefs, I just became painfully aware that we're, we're about to lose all these people and they're sticking up for what they did and it's going to be up to the rest of us to carry that on when they're all gone. Yeah. Let's
0: talk about how that came to be. So you mentioned William Clark, the prior constitution sort of conceived through, you know, the copper bosses of a sort set the stage for why 1972, why did things come together and why was there this need to develop a new document to guide the state?
1: Well, there are a lot of reasons for that. I would say one of the main, um, proponents for a new constitution who really got it through was were the um, League of Women Voters okay. of Montana, because they would go to the old legislature and it was a completely closed system. The lobbyists for the Anaconda Company or Montana Power would just sit up in the in the balcony of the legislature. And they would, um, you know, give thumbs up and thumbs down of how the legislators should vote on things. The meetings were secret. And so um, it was really those women led by a Bozeman woman who eventually became a delegate to the convention named Dorothy Eck. But that group in general, they were the ones who were really pushing for a new open government.
2: Certainly, what Sarah said is true, but I think one of the other big pushes was um, environmental concerns, which were like had a, a really rising national profile in the early '70s. Mm-hmm. And some of the delegates that came out of Missoula, who were also affiliated with the League of Women Voters, uh, Maynard Ellingson primarily. There was a lot of activism coming out of Missoula, specifically a lot of it around what was later called the Smurfit Stone plant in Missoula. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a lot of focus on air pollution,
0: and so. Let's talk about some of the unique characters involved. And Sarah, you kind of gave a summary of some of these unique folks. I think when most people not familiar with this story think of, you know, a constitutional convention, they think of our founding fathers and this group of sort of aristocratic men who already kind of traveled in that ruling circle. This was not that. This was ordinary folks that came together and... um did something really interesting. So, how did this? How did the structure of the conference kind of come to pass?
1: Part of that was from the Montana Supreme Court because they ruled that sitting legislators couldn't run um, to be delegates. Okay. So that kind of opened it up for anyone to run, and especially women and young people. Um, Maynan, then Robin Robinson, now Elling and she was a student at the University of Montana. There were people like Arlene Reichert in Great Falls, young people, women, there was a beekeeper, a lot of farmers and ranchers. And so that was part of it. They weren't politicians looking out for re-election. They just wanted to write a good new constitution for their neighbors and for the future. So that like kind of depoliticized things quite a bit. That and the actual seating chart of the convention, they decided to seat themselves alphabetically as like, you know, in the legislature, the Democrats sit on one side and the Republicans on the other. The delegates, they didn't do that. They sat alphabetically and kind of party politics after the first couple of days didn't really play into any of the decisions.
0: And how did those kind of ethics of the group coalesced.
1: Pressure. I mean, Max Baucus, who we'll all remember now as our longest serving senator and the ambassador to China, was a staffer at the convention and eventually the executive director. And he he puts a lot of um, emphasis on the time and money constraints. They had about a half million dollars in 60 days to do it. So there wasn't a lot of time for shenanigans.
0: Yeah. And so you've mentioned some of the folks that are surviving from that convention and, and this sort of desire to preserve their stories. Um, Brad, let's start with you. Why an oral history? Why was this the appropriate way to document this event and the genesis of the Constitution?
2: The Constitution is contentious mm-hmm. currently. I, I think our interest, Montana Free Press's interest and involvement really uh, helped rely on the idea that, you know, we didn't want to put an editorial thumb on this is what we make of this history. You know, we didn't want to, we didn't want to ask leading questions. Uh, we wanted to document what the experience was like through the eyes of the people who experienced it, which is not usually the journalistic approach that, you know, we're, we're a little more comfortable with, um, but I thought it was entirely appropriate here. We have this resource. It's a dwindling resource. Um, you know, not a lot of the delegates were surviving uh, still alive when we started. So we we have all the opportunity we want to write about uh, the Constitution and the various battles over it and what it means and how it's, how it's evolved. Um, I, the opportunity that was presented here was to re- get to re-experience it through the people who were there.
1: I mean, oral history uh, has very strict rules uh, and the main one being to um, ask neutral questions, don't ask leading questions. I mean, another pressure we put upon ourselves, there are, uh, there have been other oral histories that were done and they're very valuable, but a lot of them would be really hard to read if you're, you know, a sophomore at MSU Billings and maybe you don't know everything about gubernatorial administrations of the 1970s. So Um, one of our goals and like Brad was really helpful for this, um, is we, we wrote our questions as a committee to try and ask the most like purest, most neutral questions, but also to insert some exposition into those questions. So if you're a college student or just, you know, some guy in Roundup who wants to watch our interviews, That you would have all the necessary information to understand the answer to those questions. So it's, we, we set up to be really user friendly and so that any citizen can understand this and also future citizens and future students and current students as well. So, I mean, we, we have, I mean, all of that, of course, goes up the window when you're interviewing. A rascally elderly person, but we really <laughs> set out to do, uh, to be, you know, as um, fair and have a, just to have a light footprint as interviewers. This project, it's basically about, you know, saving the books before the library burns down.
0: Yeah, that's well put. So, Sarah, I'm sure as part of this oral history, some amazing stories from the delegates emerge. So, what are some of your favorite stories?
1: I mean, it depends on which side of me you're asking. If you're asking the entertainer side of me, like I love the moment when um, Jerry Lindorf, who was one of the delegates, he's talking about the ratification effort and the delegates had to go out and sell the constitution they had written to the people of Montana. And and Jerry Lindorf uh, tells Eric Dietrich from Montana Free Press, so I had seen the Kennedy-Nixon debates and Leo Graybill and I—Graybill was the president of the convention. We were going to debate some guys on the Great Falls TV station, and I told Leo we're going to wear makeup, and we did. <laughs> and I just love imagining this moment in you know 1972 Montana, where the, this like these two gruff attorneys are like putting on their makeup to sell the constitution they wrote. In terms of like my wonkier side, things are more contentious politically now in Montana, and there are all these hot button issues. And, you know, one of the things I love in this project is just explaining the basics of how some of these uh, parts of the Constitution that have become controversial came to be. One of them that probably no one even thinks about now is single member districts. Mm. And before the Constitution, the elections were just countywide. And so that had consequences, certainly in the legislature. Like a couple of people talk about how a, a city like Laurel in Yellowstone County never had any representation in the legislature because they are in the county with Billings and Billings elected everybody and not just Billings, the north side of Billings. So single member districts meant Laurel could, you know, have a senator, have a representative. But that also affected um, why there were no American Indian delegates to the convention, because same reason, single member districts in those huge counties where maybe there's a reservation, but they're not the majority of the people. So wherever there was a population you know, concentration, those people had representation, nobody else did. And so something as simple that we take for granted now as a single member district made it possible for all these smaller cities, as well as the Indian reservations to get, you know, to get some representation in the legislature. That's not a big emotional story that's going to cause a Twitter war, but it has like incredibly real ramifications for everyone in Montana. And it happened in that constitution.
0: We'll be back to our conversation with Sarah Vowell and Brad Tire after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success.
2: Hey, this is Colter Nuanas from ESPN Missoula, and you're listening to A New Angle.
0: Hey, folks. Coming up on April 2nd is the next installment of the University of Montana's Presidential Lecture Series. At 7 p.m. at the University Center Theater, prize-winning journalist Elaine Weiss will talk about her recent book, The Women's Hour, The Great Fight to Win the Vote. For more information, visit www.umt.edu slash president. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with Sarah Val and Brad Tyre about the 50th anniversary of the Montana State Constitution. So, Brad, at the onset, you mentioned your interest in kind of access to public waterways as a unique aspect that is kind of codified in the, in the Montana Constitution. Are there other aspects of the document that uh, help add to its distinctiveness that stand out to you?
2: Well, I think the big one that, that kind of intersects the work that we do at Montana Free Press and, um, all the other news organizations in the state is, is the right to know provisions, the open government provision. You, you, you hear about those when you, you, you hear about a media company suing over that constitutional provision. We think we should have had access to this meeting, but it's not the, the provision is not, uh, right to journalistic access or to media access. It's, it's, it's the right to, of any citizen. To have access to the workings of government, um, to have access to those meetings, to have access to elected officials doing the people's business. Mm -hmm. And that was a big step forward for the Montana Constitution over the prior Montana Constitution. It's being legislated in its details uh, ever since.
1: I mean, interestingly, we have um, tape from our project from both Wade DeHood, who was the chairman of the Bill of Rights Committee, and Chuck Johnson, you know, the dean of and Politics, who covered that convention for the Associated Press as a young U of M student. And even though the press benefits from the right to know as much as anyone, they almost blew it because the, the press and especially the Billings Gazette. Uh, and the broadcasters and the newspaper association all opposed that part of the bill of rights because of the right to privacy. And they, they almost, you know, they almost blew everything over that. And they had, they had to have like negotiations over this where, you know, the press had to come to terms with the inherent contradiction between the right to know and the right to privacy. And it's that tension that, is constantly being argued over and fought for, but the press almost like ruined it for everyone as they often do (laughs) (laughs) because no one had lived in a Montana where everyone was allowed to go to all the meetings and read all the documents.
0: Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the event that's coming up on March 22nd at Montana state university. You've pulled together an amazing panel for discussion of all things, Montana state constitution, set the stage. Who's on the panel? Why'd you choose these folks? And and what can we expect?
1: That event, which is on March 22nd at MSU, that's the actual 50th anniversary of the day that the delegates signed the, uh, the Constitution. We're going to be showing a highlight reel of some of these oral history interviews that we've done with the delegates, and that will eventually be archived at MSU Library. And then we have a panel where we'll have Ann Ellingson, who was uh, the aforementioned you know, youngest delegate. Mm-hmm. She'll be there, as well as Chuck Johnson, who covered the convention, and Max Baucus, who um, worked for the convention. And But we didn't want it to just be uh, about the Constitution as history. We wanted um, to kind of pivot to talk about the, the state that the Constitution created. And so we also have uh, former Governor Mark Roscoe, who's been making a lot of headlines he lately. Yeah. I, I'm calling this phase of his career Roscoe Unchained. Um, <laughs> and then we also have Denise Juno, who was the former superintendent of public instruction, and she's going to talk about the history of the, how the Indian education for all part of the Montana Constitution got implemented. So we're going to pivot into you know the, the recent past and the, and the future of the Constitution itself to, to not just talk about the actual convention to think about it as a living document.
0: Let's, in our remaining time, talk a little bit about that. You mentioned Mark Roscoe and, you know, sort of the the public remarks he's been making uh, recently, condemning the level of polarization and the, the sort of the coarseness of our current discourse. I mean, you can't help but draw a stark contrast between the spirit with which the Montana State Constitution was constructed and the spirit with which our current politics are conducted. So, you know, what are your thoughts and reflections on the moment we're living through and what maybe some of our leaders and citizens can learn from these um, these delegates and their amazing work? That's a really interesting
2: question, and Sarah has heard me um, push back uh, in the course of our conversations on the idea that the convention was uh, some sort of nonpartisan love fest. It's hard to find evidence that it wasn't because there was obviously a lot of really overt public spiritedness uh, going on in that. But at the same time, the anniversary of when the Constitution was signed is one thing. Of course, that didn't make it the Constitution until it went out to voters and voters approved it. Voters approved it by a very thin margin. It mm-hmm. was hardly unanimity uh, among the people who chose the Constitution, which is ultimately Montana voters. I was always looking for conflict and we, and we didn't find a whole lot of conflict there. I think if we look around today- I say,
1: Brad, they, they argued, but they didn't bicker. That's how like that was the characterization that came out. There was a there was a lot of heated argument, but there wasn't a bunch of, you know, petulant, childish bickering.
2: And uh, you don't see a lot of evidence that uh, that either side uh, was eager to um, identify the other side as as you know, demonic, mm-hmm. evil or or enemy. Uh, it is a living document. You know, people think of the United States Constitution and you think of this monolithic, inviolate, Document, Montana Constitution is not like that. It's uh, it's the youngest U.S. Constitution. You know, nineteen seventy two was not that long ago. It's got its own baked in provisions for changing it. Um, You know, the idea is not that it's an inviolate document. It's that it's a document that is subject to revision by the people who are subject to it, and they vote every is it every twenty years?
1: Mm -hmm. Yes,
2: every twenty years. So the past two votes. To call a new constitutional convention, uh, which would you know spark a rewriting of the constitution, have failed in um, nineteen ninety and two thousand ten. There were failed votes. There will be another one in twenty thirty.
1: If that's successful and a new convention is called, I think this project that we've we've created would be a good resource for those delegates, but also for the people, like what to seek out, how to decide who to vote for um, in terms of who do you want representing you as your delegate.
0: So in our remaining moments here, i just love to touch on, you know, the two of you seem to have some shared journalism upbringing of a sort. Like you've worked for Alt weeklies. Uh, Sarah, you've described it to me as kind of a punk rock sensibility with your approach to storytelling. Talk about that. How has that informed your work overall and maybe the spirit with which you brought the the spirit you brought to this project?
1: I do think like for me, I don't know about Brad, but we were we both were music critics for the alt weeklies in the 90s. That punk approach probably has given me an appreciation for amateurs with something to say, Mm. like to me. There was something kind of punk about the delegates of the convention because, like, you know, those punk bands were just people who couldn't play guitars picked up guitars. Someone who never sang before is suddenly Johnny Rotten, you know. And there's something about some of these delegates where, I mean, obviously none of them had ever written a constitution before, but they just, you know, took the ball and ran with it. I think it was um, Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth she always said, you know, people will pay money to see someone believe in themselves. Mm. And that there's something about these delegates where, you know, they just decided to believe in themselves. Like, I, I think I can do this. And then they convince their neighbors to vote for them.
2: That's that's one thing that really impressed me. Sarah mentioned earlier, we interviewed some of the researchers and uh, I, I have a little bit of a back office sensibility, not, not a frontman sensibility. I guess I'm based in this analogy really loved talking to those folks um their job was to do the research i mean they they, they were kind of inventing the wheel they they maybe they weren't reinventing it but th- this idea that they just start from scratch and wrote a guidebook to how to build a constitution these are college they're college kids you know, as as many punks in full flower are and just jumped right into this um Project that I can only imagine I would have considered overwhelming and completely beyond me. I mean, even now, never mind when I was 19 or 20. I, I think there's an alignment there with the idea of, you know, getting up on a stage when you, d- you don't have any credentialing that you know what you're doing. But to step up to the moment and, and take advantage of it. That's that's the thing about really all the delegates we spoke to and, and, and those researchers especially grabbed my attention.
1: I mean, the staff and the delegates, they represented not just Montana, but all the Montanas. Like there's the car dealer, tractor dealer, farmer, rancher part of Montana is well represented among the delegates. The researchers, I mean, having grown up in Bozeman in the 80s, it was a very high-minded town, you know? And so I really, and it was all the high-minded kids from all over Montana, like show up and, you know, they're all, you know, taking philosophy classes. And and um, I read most of the books that those researchers wrote and they're just, if you like, you Pretentious young people. They are a delight because these guys, you know, they're from Libby and Shelby and they're quoting Borges and they're talking about the Enlightenment. And and it really took me back to the Montana of my youth. Everybody came together and brought all the Montanas to Helena.
0: Fantastic. Well, there's so many remarkable stories sort of set within this amazing story. Amazing event coming up on March 22nd. In addition, the oral history will be released. Tell us where, you know, if if listeners want to learn more about the event and the oral history project, where would you direct them online?
1: Probably Montana Free Press, which is montanafreepress.org, as well as our partner MSU um, and um, this event, which is March 22nd at Sub Ballroom A and the student union building at MSU that will be live streamed. So anyone in Montana or Mongolia can, can watch that program that night online. And I think it'll be recorded. So if you miss it, you can watch it later.
0: Super. Well, it is promised to be an exciting event. Thank you both for being here today. Thank you both for this project, for commemorating this amazing story and doing this great service to the state of Montana. Thanks for being here today.
1: Thanks, Justin. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks.
0: Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from University of Montana alums, Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. A.J. Williams is our producer bto jeff amet and john wicks made our music editing by nick mott and jeff meese is our master of all things sound thanks a lot and see you next time